0: another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Kara Bruce, the ABI's resident scholar for the fall of 2013 and an associate professor at the University of Toledo College of Law. Settlements between prosecutors and big banks have grabbed headlines at several points over the last year. At last count, five major banks have paid penalties, some in the billions of dollars, to settle accusations that they manipulated the LIBOR rate. Last year, HSBC resolved allegations that it aided narco-terrorist laundering of hundreds of millions of dollars and willfully and repeatedly committed violations of the foreign assets control sanctions. Looking to the last few weeks, JP Morgan Chase continued its negotiations to resolve at an expected $13.1 billion price tag its ongoing mortgage securities probes. The media and other commentators increasingly criticized these settlements as being too soft on banks. Professor Greg Gilchrist considers this too-big-to-jail controversy in his recent article, The Special Problem with Banks and Crime, which will be published in the Colorado Law Review later this year. Greg is a professor at the University of Toledo College of Law, where he teaches and writes in the area of criminal law, corporate law, criminal procedure, and white-collar crime. Before joining the faculty, he was a criminal defense lawyer both in private practice and in the Office of the Federal Public Defender. He has defended individuals, corporations, and public officials in criminal and civil proceedings, and has represented individuals in congressional investigations. He has also conducted internal investigations on behalf of corporations and advised corporations on compliance matters. So welcome, Greg. Thanks for joining me.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Kara.
0: So you've been following this issue of bank crimes for a while. Uh, Can you give us a sense of what you've observed?
1: Well, yeah, I, I think you've captured part of it in your introduction. There have been um, a number of high-profile settlements in, in the last uh, year and a half, and so that's really captured public attention. Um, but on this issue of banks and crime, I think much of the attention has been about what has not occurred, rather than what has occurred. What I mean by that is, there have been these large settlements, and they really are quite, um, quite, quite stunning when you see the numbers. Um, but what we haven't seen are indictments and trials against banks, or uh, even prosecutions of individual bank employees. Um, and so that, that's really, I think, what's led to the criticism, is why there haven't been more uh, individual prosecutions.
0: So before we get on to that, that issue of, of prosecutions, do you have any sense of how pervasive this type of criminal bank behavior is?
1: Well... No, we really don't. Um, and I, I suppose the, the reason for that is there's, there's not a way to measure um, the, the amount of crime within banks. Uh, what we can see are the number of settlements or the number of prosecutions, but that's really more of a factor of where prosecutors are putting their resources, what their priorities are, um, and I don't think it's a good indicator of the uh, kind of baseline quantity of crime uh, within, within financial institutions. Um, I guess I would also note, though, that if we're talking about uh, this behavior and, and referring to criminal conduct, not all of these uh, investigations are eaten. And And what I mean by that is there, there are, broadly speaking, I think, two categories of conduct that, that these settlements have, have centered on. One category are investigations into what I would call clearly criminal conduct. Uh, so that's uh, the examples of fixing interest rates, or um, allowing and profiting from you know money laundering on a large scale, or uh, the systemic and intentional OFAC violations. These are these are sort of core criminal activities, um, the sort of crimes that if you or I committed, uh, we'd be facing years in prison. Um, on the other hand, there's a lot of publicity around another type of investigation, uh, and those are these are the the financial crisis investigations. Right? It was their fraud in the packaging and the sale of mortgage-backed securities. Uh, and this is still criminal. I, I don't want to suggest otherwise. According you know, the allegations in these cases are allegations of criminal wrongdoing in some instances. Um, but there are more subtle and complicated cases. And they raise difficult questions about who within the bank knew about the value of the securities at what time, who failed to disclose that information, um, really difficult questions of mens rea that I, don't, I think are um, much more nuanced than in those more core criminal, um, criminal investigations. You know, at this time, with all the media publicity, we're in this period of sort of populist anger against the banks. And I think one of the, one of the difficulties this raises is uh, all these criminal investigations tend to get lumped together. And that tends to muddle the issues uh, just a
0: bit. Well I know your paper focuses more on these core criminal activities you you use HSBC as one particular example of, of of egregious criminal wrongdoing um and so why in your estimation when we have uh evidence that that this behavior is widespread and and really quite fl- flagrant uh, are we not seeing criminal prosecutions of banks and bankers
1: Right well see that's that's the key question, and that's, that's what's generated, I think, a, a lot of the criticism. And to really get at the answer, I think it's helpful to separate that into two questions. First, you know, prosecutions against banks, and then second, prosecutions against bankers. Uh, starting with the banks, there are often good reasons not to prosecute a bank, even a bank, uh, where there is evidence of criminal wrongdoing on behalf of the bank. Um, you know, in, let's see, earlier this year, Attorney General Holder, Assistant Attorney, then Assistant Attorney General Lanny Brewer, were both strongly criticized when they said at various speaking appearances that they consider the economic consequences of charging a large bank when making a charging decision. Um, people were offended by that admission and thought it was problematic. I, I argue that their comments were correct and, and, and also really should not be surprising uh, the U.S. Attorney's Manual um, has for years had principles of federal prosecution of, bu- of business organizations, and these principles require prosecutors to consider the collateral consequences of charging any business organization with a crime. Um, and, and that's a good idea. We, we want that, because the collateral consequences of charging uh, any business entity can be severe. They can also be the dominant consequences. That is, it can be the main uh, effect of the charge. Think about it this way. Who, who pays the fines when we have a criminal fine, fine on a business? Well, most directly, it's the shareholders. And when we're talking about a large business entity or a large bank, um, most of the shareholders are entirely innocent of the wrongdoing. I mean, they may, they may own shares through mutual funds and be completely unconnected from the governance of the bank. And, and that's going to be true for the majority of people who are effectively paying the fine. Um, these externalities can, can affect others besides the shareholders as well. It can affect employees, right? In, in the uh, now infamous Arthur Anderson case, um, the firm was shut down by the criminal charges. As a result, tens of thousands of employees lost their, their job. Uh, fines can affect consumers if, their cost are, uh, if the pa- costs are passed on to the consumers. So I, I think when prosecutors are deciding whether to charge uh, a large bank, or any large business organization, we want them to consider these externalities in making that decision. The harder question, though, I think, is if we look to the individual bankers. Uh, at the end of the day, right, banks aren't committing crimes, bankers are. It, it, when, we, when we say a bank is guilty of a crime, it's simply because some agent of the bank, usually an employee, has committed a crime uh, in furtherance of their agency and, and with the, you know, in the interest of the, of the bank. Um, so, if a bank is paying, say, billions of dollars to settle allegations of criminal conduct, someone in the bank has committed a crime. And why aren't those people uh, being prosecuted? After all, all the reasons that I talked about why we might not ch- charge a large bank, the externalities that are associated with the charges, uh, they don't apply to individual employees. And, and in fact, Judge Rakoff made uh, exactly this point yesterday uh, when he. Um, he pointed out that a prosecutor um, has reason not to charge a bank, but it, you know, the, the, the externality reasons just don't apply to bankers at all. Um, there's just no comparable consideration with individual.
0: So where's the breakdown in that respect um, coming well, from?
1: Why aren't they charging prosecutors? Uh, why aren't they charging individual bankers? You
0: mean? Right, yeah.
1: Yeah, um, see, in any individual case, it's hard to know. Here's what I think across the board. Uh, Individual white-collar prosecutions are very difficult um, prosecutions to maintain. Uh, It's it's hard to build the case. It's extremely difficult to identify the evidence that will establish each of the elements of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, The most difficult frequently is establishing mens rea. And when we're talking about a large institution with numerous people involved in uh, any decision made on behalf of the institution, it can be very difficult to pinpoint which individual had the guilty knowledge or the guilty mens rea at a point in time. Um, that could be that the evidence simply doesn't exist. There is no uh, sort of email that indicates here is where the problem occurred. Or it could be that even if the evidence exists, it's, you know, it's buried amid such a massive documentation um, that it could be hard. In the, in the HSBC case, I think it was about 9 million pages of documents that the bank produced to DOJ uh, in, in that investigation. And reviewing 9 million pages of documents is just impossible. I mean, at that point, uh, law firms and uh, prosecutors' offices have to rely on uh, automated search tools and you know, shortcuts to get at the information, but there's no perfect way to look at everything that's there. There's just so much. So I think building these cases is difficult. And at the end of the day... If a prosecutor does not have sufficient evidence to establish each element of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt, she should not proceed with a case. So, you know, the DOJ has taken a lot of heat for failure to bring individual prosecutions. I think there is some reason to be concerned about that. Uh, But at at the same time, in any individual case, uh, it's hard to second-guess the judgment of a prosecutor that she doesn't have sufficient evidence against a jury of guilt.
0: Fair enough. but uh, the, So the settlements that have been reached are extremely large. You referred to that earlier. When we look at it by pure dollar standards, um, the HSBC settlement, as you note in your paper, Caused the bank to pay fines and forfeitures of over $1.9 billion. And the Chase settlement uh, is projected to top $13 billion. Uh, so with these great fees and penalties, uh, does that amount to sort of the functional equivalent or, or a useful alternative to criminal prosecutions?
1: Well, that's, that's an interesting issue. I, I, I think to get at it, we need to think about what are we trying to accomplish with these fines.
0: One thing we want to
1: do is to deter future wrongdoing. And you know, these large fines are undoubtedly a signal to other banks that there will be significant consequences for criminal conduct. And so they will create an incentive to enhance compliance programs, to conduct more routine and aggressive audits to identify problems earlier. Um, maybe they'll even uh, change cultures within some firms. But it's also important to recognize the limits of these fines. Um, if we think about the deterrent effect, one thing we need to keep in mind is that a rational actor needs to discount the respective fine by the chance of fine, or even by the chance that the fine will never actually be imposed. I, I, you know, my favorite, excuse me, my favorite example of this is the Siemens case, where Siemens was, uh, entered a settlement into um, a uh, series of FCPA violations, basically allegations that they were bribing foreign government officials. Uh, and they paid a fine of, or a set of fines that totaled about $1.6 billion. So, again, by any measure, an incredible amount of money. But in that settlement, Siemens admitted to having paid $1.4 billion worth of bribes. So when someone pays $1.4 billion worth of bribes, they presumably did so uh, in order to secure more than $1.4 billion worth of profit. In fact, presumably a lot more. Because... People don't tend to engage, and entities don't tend to engage in criminal behavior for you know, marginal profits. They do it for more significant profits. So it seems fair to assume, although I can't know, uh, that Siemens may have made more than the amount they paid in, uh, the amount they paid in fines by their criminal conduct. But, but here's the real problem, is we need to think about what would a company in Siemens' position, that is, Siemens' position before it was caught in fine, how would they... Uh, calculate the chance of being caught and fined, as Siemens was. Do they think that it's a 1 in 10 possibility? If they do, then we have to discount the prospective fine by 90%. That's what a rational actor would do. And so the deter- if that's right, the deterrent value of that $1.6 billion fine is actually $160 million, the tenth of the full amount. Um, so if, and I'm making up numbers here, but if, we, if, if a firm believes it can profit say $2 billion at an expected cost of $160 million, then the $1.6 billion fine is no deterrent at all. Um, there are other limits, too, that are worth keeping in mind. We've, when we impose these large fines, we are um, we're imposing the fine effectively on the shareholders, but it's not the shareholders who are deciding on a day-to-day basis how much compliance to have, uh, what sort of audits to run, and whether to engage in criminal conduct. Uh, it's, it's presumably people in management or even at lower levels of company. And so even if we imagine, say, a manager-shareholder, someone who does have a vested interest in the company would prefer that share prices remain high, uh, that person may not, it, rationally, may not calculate the entire cost of the fine in deciding whether to engage in criminal conduct. It might be that the risk he's, he's presented with personally from being caught is small compared to the roots of his crime, which may be, you know, greater employment opportunities, a bigger bonus, um, promotion. Uh, and so in some ways by dis- disconnecting the wrongdoer from who's paying the fine, we have another problem with the fine. Now, I, I don't want to be too negative on these fines. I, I, I do think they serve valid, valid goals. And I do think that certainly within a firm that pays a fine, there is a significant effort generally to – um, revamp its compliance structure to make it more aggressive and more rigorous. Uh, and I think across an entire industry, it can have the same effect. So there are there are benefits, uh, but we shouldn't look at these as a panacea.
0: So, Greg, in your paper, you have an alternative uh, to the, the criminal prosecutions that draws on um, what our legal system, what tools our legal system already possesses. Can you tell us a little bit about where you see this uh, too-big-to-jail problem, going.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I guess to get at that, it's helpful to uh, identify what is this too-big-to-jail problem. It has a number of different respects. Part of it is, I think, captured by the the limits on efficacy of fines that I've just outlined. But there's there's another problem as well, and that is uh, what I call the expressive cost of systemic failures to prosecute. What I mean by that is well, before I mentioned that if you or I committed these crimes, we'd be facing years in prison. Uh, I think people see something unfair where street crimes are prosecuted vigorous, but similar crimes that are committed uh, within a large established business result in, say, a negotiated fine, no individual prosecutions. Um, this seems like treating people differently based on their position within world or their status, and it's problematic. Uh, just that perception is problem. My solution is, or the solution I'm proposing, is to look to existing laws that empower bank regulators to impose civil penalties on bad actors within the banks. Um, here, what, what I'm talking about are civil remedies where the standard of proof would be by a preponderance of the evidence as opposed to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, there are lower mens rea standards Men's Rea standards. And all in all, these are much easier cases to make rather than the um, white collar criminal prosecutions. Uh, I think if, if regulators began using these tools after the fact against individual people within the banks who allowed this criminal conduct to occur, it could remedy the perception that the people committing the crimes in large banks are, are, are getting away with it. Um, and, and the penalties can be quite severe. You know, I think people hear civil remedy and it sounds, well, that's inherently unfair uh, because a minute ago I was talking about years in prison. And and it's true. It's not the same. But uh, make no mistake, the penalties that are available are real, and they could include clawbacks of salaries and bonuses. Um, They could even include industry suspensions or even bans uh, from the industry. So there are serious penalties that could reflect um, serious condemnation of, of individual wrongdoers.
0: So, if we're to enhance the regulatory role uh, with with bank crimes or bank wrongdoings, uh, would that require additional regulations, more regulations over banks, or or do we have the tools completely already for existing regulators to to move forward in this way? I, I think we have
1: the tools. Actually, I, there's there's a lot of discussion right now about whether uh, we need additional bank regulations or. Uh, to the contrary, whether we have too many bank regulations and it's, it's hindering the, the business of banking, um, I, I'm not really an expert on, on that matter. Uh, what I'm looking at is a kind of very specific breakdown in the criminal prosecution of banks and bankers and suggesting that these existing regulations that we do already have might help address that problem.
0: Well, in addition to uh, to these issues that have been swarming around about um, about bank liability, uh, we also have had a, a lot of attention focused on the size of banks um, and initi- initiatives to decrease the size of banks. And how did those ideas and and proposals factor into your analysis? Will this get us part of the way to where we need to go with big banks?
1: Well, that's interesting. You know, my analysis is actually uh, looking for a solution, assuming we have these large banks. Um, but there is no doubt that large banks and the fact of, of, uh, of these large financial institutions uh, they're less susceptible to stringent criminal regulation than smaller financial entities. Uh, The when i talked about the externalities the prosecutors have to consider those externalities are magnified magnified many times when we're talking about a massive uh... so there's a significant reason not to prosecute there are also more limited remedies um, if you think back to the um, First Bank of Delaware, uh, a few years ago, uh, was, was found to have vi- had AML violations. And the, the, the significance of these, there they they were a fraction of what uh, HSBC admitted to the recent settlement. So it was, it was a serious matter, but, but fairly small in comparison. That bank lost its insurance, it lost its charter, and its assets were sold to another bank all over the course of a weekend, right? It just, it was shut down immediately. Um, but that was a relatively small bank, and that sort of remedy as a practical matter is not available against a, uh, a, a giant like, like HSBC or any of the very large banks. I mean, who, who could afford to buy such a bank to, to take on all the assets and liabilities of the bank, never mind over the course of a weekend? And so uh, the damage to the economy from the uncontrolled shuttering of such an institution would be significant. And prosecutors are, are I think, rightfully... Um, afraid of, of damaging the economy in that way
0: and so yes it, it, I think any
1: effort to limit the size of banks putting aside the merits of, of that proposal as a financial map that's not something I, I study personally and but it would certainly help alleviate the um, problem we have with crypto.
0: So, Greg, have you seen any movement towards uh, an increased regulatory role in this venue? Um, or have you seen any other developments that suggest that more attention is being paid uh, to the limitations of, of sort of a criminal mechanism for enforcing bank violations?
1: Well, there's, there's no question that, that there has been movement. Um, in fact, the OCC recently announced a new initiative for stronger Section 30 regulations, um, I, I think they've sig- signaled a new emphasis on more aggressive ex-anti-supervision of banks, that is, supervising the banks and regulating the banks before there's a problem. Um, and so, yeah, the, the outcry against what people perceive as lax enforcement against banks uh, has been heard. Even, even the Department of Justice, I think, is making uh, an effort to appear strong in its criminal regulation of financial institutions. Um, but, you know, so, so the... The criticism has been heard. There is a regulatory response. There's even a prosecutorial response. But these things are incremental. I don't think we should expect um, some massive shift overnight. And I'm not, not even sure we should want some massive shift overnight. There needs to be a change. Uh, people recognize this uh, symbolic failure to hold uh, wrongdoers accountable and the real cost that imposes on our criminal justice system. Uh, and I think it's being addressed, but it's going to be an incremental process.
0: All right. Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you, Greg, for joining me today. Well, Kara, thanks for having me. And um, it's really been a pleasure talking about this. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. You can find Greg's article in a forthcoming volume of the Colorado Law Review or on the Social Science Research Network, SSRN.com. You can always find more than 140 podcasts on our website, podcast.abi.org. Until next time, from the American Bankruptcy Institute, this is resident scholar Kara Bruce.